0: Thanks for coming to Theological whipping Class. Uh, all semester we are talking about applied theology. So we're basically just kind of giving an overview of discipleship, talking about things like spiritual disciplines. And uh, what, we want, what we want to talk about today is what are called the means of grace. The means of grace. To understand what that means, uh, I want to ask a couple of questions. I want you to just think about these questions. Don't blurt anything out. Uh, but think about this. Uh, four questions. Number one. If you think back to the story of the Exodus, when Yahweh, when he delivers Israel from Egypt, why didn't he just instantly teleport them to the promised land? We see that in the Old Testament with uh, various prophets uh, that are just kind of teleported from one location to another. Why didn't God do that with Israel? Why do they have to walk? Why do they have to wander around the wilderness? Why do they have to eat manna? Or speaking of uh, eating... When, uh, when God promises uh, to give us daily bread, why do we have to actually consume it? Why do we have to chew it? Why do we have to uh, partake of it? Why doesn't he just preserve us magically? Why doesn't he just sustain us without us having to actually consume bread? Or third, why is preaching of the gospel necessary for salvation? Think back to the conversion of Paul. Paul is Uh, uh, has this experience uh, on the Damascus Road. God directly talks to Paul. And he says, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? God is already directly talking to Paul. Why doesn't he just convert Paul in that moment? In reality, Paul goes, if you remember the story, he's blind for a couple of days. And then uh, God sends Ananias to him to preach the gospel to him so that he might be saved. Or to think of another story in the book of Acts, uh, this man Cornelius is uh, is praying. The Lord reveals Himself directly to Cornelius and says, "Go and seek out uh, Simon Peter, and he'll share the gospel with you." So, why didn't God just do it directly? Why not cut out the middleman or one more? Why doesn't God just instantly reveal Himself to us fully when we get saved? Why does he give us a Bible to read? Why does this, this uh, pro- progressive sort of thing? Why does not he just download truth into us like the Matrix? All right, the answer to each of those is the same. And that is because God uses appointed means to accomplish his appointed ends. Right, he led Israel to the promised land. That's the end. But he required them to walk and to wander. He gives us food, but he requires us to eat. He regenerates our heart, but he does so through the gospel. He reveals himself, but not um, apart from our reading and hearing the word. And So that's what we're talking about today. In particular, we're asking this question, how does God sanctify us? How does God make us look more like Jesus? Because that's the goal. The goal is that we would look more like Jesus. The goal is to look more like Christ, And few words really encompass what that means holistically than the word holy. So God's love is described as a holy love. His grace is a holy grace. His anger is a holy anger. This is why the angels, uh, when they're in God's presence in the book of Isaiah, cry out, Holy, holy, holy in his presence. Because everything that he does is holy. All of God's attributes are holy. That is, they're distinct, they're set apart. And so we, as his people, should be marked by holiness. That should be the thing that people say about us, is that there's this holiness that is uh, uh, our attribute. So Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Or Numbers 15.40, So you shall remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Or 1 Peter 1 in the New Testament, 14 through 16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So how does that happen? How do we actually become holy? And why doesn't it just happen immediately? Why doesn't it just happen apart from any other means, as we were talking about earlier? Some claim that it kind of does, right? There's certain charismatic teachers in particular that teach some sort of crisis experience whereby you're just suddenly, you suddenly stop sinning. That was kind of the view of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism as well. He taught that there was this sudden crisis experience, this sudden moment in which you were fully sanctified, perfected in sanctification. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't align with my Christian experience. And it certainly doesn't align with Scripture, which encourages us. Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The point of that passage is it's never done. The work is never actually complete. Or, Or Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Notice that we are to strive for holiness. We're to mortify the flesh. We're to vivify the spirit. So while it's certainly an error to hold the idea that sin still enslaves the believer, we've been set free from sin. The appropriate reaction to that error is not to swing the pendulum to adopt this other false teaching that has this sort of over-realized eschatology as if we're already perfected, already glorified, already perfectly sanctified. In reality, sanctification isn't immediate. And that word immediate is really important because, on one hand, the way that we typically think about uh, the word immediate is that it means without delay. And that's certainly true. Sanctification isn't immediate, it doesn't happen instantaneously apart from glorification. There is this delay between our current experience and our future sanctification, our, our, our full sanctification. So that's one meaning of the word immediate, but the word immediate also means without means or without mediation. Immediate, think of the word medium in there, without something that's in between. Immediate means without something in between, something to mediate it. So if sanctification isn't immediate, that means that it is mediated. How is it mediated to us? By what are called the means of grace. Grace. So if you were to ask, how do I grow in holiness? How can I be discipled to look more like Jesus? The short answer is it's by grace. It's by grace alone. Having begun by grace, are you now being perfected by works? Of course not. Everything is grace. Your justification, your sanctification, your glorification, your adoption, your regeneration, all of God's works to you are by grace. But that grace comes through means comes through these ordinary means. In other words, God could save us instantly, making us absolutely holy. He could perfectly sanctify us when we're saved, but instead he chooses to use these ordinary means of grace. That's what we're talking about today. So this morning we're going to ask and try to answer four questions. Number one, what do we mean by ordinary means of grace? Number two, what are the ordinary means of grace? Number three, what does the church tri- traditionally thought about the means of grace, and then four, how should we pursue the ordinary means of grace? Let's begin by addressing what's meant by the phrase ordinary means of grace. We'll look at some definitions. Wayne Grudem, he says, the means of grace are any activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. Any activities within the fellowship of the church that God uses to give more grace to Christians. Charles Hodge says, those means which God has ordained for the end of communicating the life-giving and sanctifying influences of the Spirit to the souls of men. or Herman Bovink says that the means of grace are external, humanly perceptible actions and signs that Christ has given his church and with which he has linked the communication of his grace. Let's expound on those definitions a bit by considering each of those three words, ordinary, and then means, and then grace. First, what's meant by ordinary? When we talk about ordinary, what we mean by that in the phrase ordinary means of grace is actually twofold. There's actually two uh, sort of meanings there behind the word ordinary. The first thing that we mean by ordinary is that it is ordained. Consider the root word there between ordinary and ordinances. Ordinances or laws or regulations, something that's been commanded. So when we say that these are ordinary means of grace... We mean that there are things that God has ordained or God has commanded. And that's really helpful for us because it's a reminder to us that God isn't just playing hide-and-go-seek with us when it comes to our sanctification. He wants us to know him. He's told us where he can, be, where he can actually be known. Right? In other words, God doesn't leave it up to us to just figure out how to grow in sanctification. He's told us where to look. And he's told us what to do. Sanctification is mysterious, but it's not a riddle. God tells us where he can be found by prescribing certain means for us. And that brings us to the next aspect, the second uh, kind of nuance of ordinary, which is that it's not extraordinary. It's not, it's not extraordinary. Let me give you an illustration of this. If you want to see a tiger, where would you go? The zoo, right? Or India or something like that, Right? Right. If you want to see a tiger, you should probably go somewhere where they have tigers, India, the zoo, whatever it might be. Would you ordinarily expect to see a tiger in the streets of McKinney? No. When you open up your, your door in the morning, do you expect to see a tiger there? Probably not, right? Of course not. Now, does that mean that you absolutely will not? No, it doesn't mean that, right? In fact, uh, my wife and I were in Houston a few years back there's a really bad storm because it's always storming in Houston. That's where I'm from. I hate it. And, uh, and so we were there, and, and we heard on the radio that a tiger had, had escaped from an enclosure. So we're like driving out of town, and we're looking all over the place for a tiger, right, there in uh, Houston. So is it possible that you could see a tiger in your backyard? Yeah. But is it ordinary? The answer is no. Is it a good stewardship of your time to spend hours each morning sitting in your backyard with a 30-06 just in case a tiger shows up? The answer is no, of course not. All right. Well, that's what's happening when it comes to the ordinary means of grace. If you want to see a tiger, the ordinary way for you is to go to uh, the zoo. Likewise, if you want to encounter God, there are these ordinary means of grace. We'll talk about what those means are shortly, but that's what's meant by ordinary. I found the following quote in my studies. I forgot to write down the author, but it's helpful, so I figured I would include it. Um, And it's God's ordinary way of communicating his grace to his people is through ordinary means. To communicate his grace, God has always used and does today creaturely means, such as the spoken word, human ministers of the gospel, bread and wine, the written word. He does that rather than ordinarily, working through the extraordinary. In other words, immediate and direct acts of his spirit within individuals. This is borne out by the scriptural record. It's not that God can't work in extraordinary ways, for on occasion he does. But rather he has shown himself as the God who has chosen to ordinarily communicate his favor to his people through the common means of his creation. In other words, God does extraordinary things, but he he does extraordinary things often through ordinary things. He, He accomplishes these extraordinary ends like regeneration and sanctification and so forth, through ordinary means. Extraordinary ends through ordinary means. Think about your finances for a second. What's the ordinary way for you to have a large nest egg for retirement? Work hard, save, invest wisely, whatever it might be. Ordinarily, if you want to be able to retire comfortably, you have to kind of do those things. But what if you were to win the lottery, right? That's possible. I read this past week. Someone won a million dollars on a scratch off here in uh, McKinney. If that's you, congrats. That's awesome. All right. So it's possible that you could win enough money for you to retire, but that's extraordinary, right? If your retirement strategy, if I'm talking to you and say, hey, what's your retirement strategy? You're like, I'm going to win the lottery. I think you're not that smart, right? That's probably not going to happen for you. Likewise, if you think, I'm going gr- to grow, I'm going to be sanctified, I'm going to grow in holiness, I'm going to be conformed to the image of Christ, but I'm going to neglect the means that God has appointed, I think you're probably not very smart. Right? You're not pursuing God in the way that he has appointed. That's foolish. This was first meant by ordinary. Next, what do we mean by means? Well, we've talked about this quite a bit already. God uses means to accomplish his ends. And by the way, that idea doesn't compromise his sovereignty. We're really big on sovereignty here at Parkway. In fact, I think that understanding this actually accentuates and emphasizes God's sovereignty. Think about the death of Christ and all the things that had to have happened for his death to be accomplished. Right? Judas had to betray him. Pilate and Herod had to conspire. The Romans had to approve. The soldiers had to carry it out, etc., in other words, his sovereignty, God's sovereignty, had to extend not just to that one act, but to all of the dozens of wills of men and so forth. Those are all means to an end. And so when we understand that God's sovereignty extends not only to the end, but also to the means to accomplish that end, we have a deeper appreciation for it. Herman Bavinck says, that God illuminates and warms the earth with the sun. He waters the plowed fields with the rain that He causes to fall from the clouds. He builds the house by means of the workmen. He nourishes by means of food. He quenches by means of water. Always and everywhere, the Lord binds outcomes to pathways, ends to means. He maintains and rules all things through and in relation to each other. So when we talk about means, it helps us uh, to see that the means exist for some other end, besides themselves. uh, the, uh, the, The means exists for some other end besides themselves. The point of reading the Bible isn't just simply so that you could check off that you read the Bible today. The point of reading the Bible, that's a means. The point is that you would encounter God, that you would grow in holiness and so forth. The same thing with the point of prayer. The point of prayer isn't just to say, I prayed. The point of prayer is that you would engage God. The point is the end. It's the goal. It's the purpose. The end is the why. The means are the how. They're the way that you get to that particular end. If going to Israel is the goal, then the means is getting on a plane, right? Again, the point isn't the means. but The means are necessary nonetheless. Let me give you another illustration. A few years back, my daughter had this medical condition required her to have this IV port for daily uh, injections of antibiotics, and that she had to have injections twice a day of blood thinners. So here's the question. Does that port itself or, or did that needle itself do anything to treat my daughter? Did the actual port or the actual IV treat my daughter? Did that actual needle do anything? Of course not. It was the medicine that helped her. So does that mean, though, that the port and the IV tubes and the needles and so forth were just unnecessary? Of course not. They're the means by which that help was administered to my daughter. And that's what's happening with these means of grace. God's grace is always what changes us, but that grace is administered to us through means, that grace is attached in God's sovereignty to these various means. As Burke Parsons says, if we actually believe God is sovereign, we must trust his sovereignly appointed means to bring about his desired ends. The means that God has appointed for our spiritual nourishment and growth and grace are what we call the ordinary means of grace, namely the word, prayer, the sacraments of baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and uh, necessarily joined to these the church's discipline and care of souls. These means are appointed by God, are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and point us to Christ. And they sustain us and nourish us in our union with Christ as we rest in the sovereign ends of our triune God. That's what's meant by means. God accomplishes ends through various means. And then lastly, grace. Again, this is not workspace. This is not legalism. When we're talking about you should pursue God through these means, we're not saying you pursue God by works. We're justified by grace alone. We're sanctified by grace alone. But that grace is always, again, attached to some means. God could regenerate someone apart from any spoken word or the written word, but he chooses to use the written and spoken word. And that word is itself grace. Likewise, God could sanctify you apart from means, but he generally doesn't. He uses ordinary means to do so. God's design for you is to be conformed to the image of his Son His desire for you is to grow in holiness, to mortify the things of the flesh, to vivify the things of the Spirit. And if that happens, that's entirely by grace. But that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. we, we, We are to cooperate to some degree by going to where God has said he will be found. Lewis Burkhoff says, fallen man receives all the blessings of salvation out of the eternal fountain of the grace of God in virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ and through the operation of the Holy Spirit, While the Spirit can and does in some respects operate independently on the soul of the sinner, he has seen fit to bind himself largely to the use of certain means in the communication of divine grace. The term means of grace is not found in the Bible, but is nevertheless a proper designation of the means that are indicated in the Bible. So what are these particular means of grace? How many are there? Well, that really depends on who you ask. You're reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, a great book. I r- highly recommend it. But he, re- he says that there are at least 11. He lists out the following teaching of the Word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, prayer for one another, worship, church discipline, giving, spiritual gifts, fellowship, evangelism, personal ministry to individuals. And in a sense, it's helpful to have this longer list. In a sense, all of the various spiritual disciplines that we're talking about this semester could be considered means of grace, but historically, the church has held that there aren't really 11. There are three or four true means of grace. And the other things that Gruda mentions, the other seven or eight, uh, and even things that he doesn't mention, like fasting or missions, they said those maybe aren't means of grace. They're what we might call means of growth. Uh, but means of grace, as traditionally taught, is typically either three or four. According to, uh, again, Herman Bovink, he says, Strictly speaking, the word and the sacraments alone can be viewed as means of grace. So you have the word, that's the preaching and teaching of the word, and then you have the sacraments, which would be communion and and the Lord's Supper, uh, or communion and baptism. And then others, such as Charles Hodge, he adds a fourth means of grace. So you have the word, you have the sacraments, the two sacraments, and then you have prayer. So I'm going to go with that. That's kind of traditionally what uh, where most have landed in the Reformed uh, tradition, is to say there are four means of grace. And then there's other things that you can do that are means of growth or other beneficial sort of things. So I'm going to say that the means of grace are three or four, depending on whether you want to have the sacrament as one or divided into two different categories, baptism and communion. Regardless, the means of grace are word, sacrament, Uh, which is baptism and communion and then prayer. Look at a few of these quotes from church history. The London Baptist Confession of 1689, unless you think this is just some sort of Presbyterian thing or something. It says, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism in the Lord's Supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, Uh, it is increased and strengthened. Or the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what are the outward means whereby God communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer it gives is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the words, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So these three or four, depending on how you look at it, are what Protestants have typically viewed as being central. The Word of God, the sacraments or ordinances, and then prayer. And by the way, I mentioned this before, but when it comes to the Word, that typically is not referring to just sort of what you do uh, individually for your morning quiet time or something like that. Typically when it refers to the Word within a uh, Reformed context, Protestant context that typically refers to preaching. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism says the Spirit of God makes the reading but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith and to salvation. Or Bavink again says the first and most important means of grace is the word of God. So why is this most important? Why is the word of God the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Why is that the most important? And the answer is because it contains all the other means. For example, the Word is what makes a sacrament a sacrament. Augustine said, Take away the word, and water is nothing more and nothing less than water. The word, add the word to the element, add the word to the water, and it becomes a sacrament. What he's saying here is that the Word of God is what distinguishes communion from just your normal everyday lunch or dinner. It's what distinguishes baptism from your your normal dip in the pool. All right? So the Word is what makes the sacrament the sacrament. So that's why the Word has a primacy over the sacrament. And the Word is also what fuels and empowers our prayers As well. So the word, the reading of the word, the praying of the word, the preaching of the word, uh, the teaching of the word, the singing of the word, all of that is primary. And the other means are then empowered as they're aligned with that word. So I want you to notice something though. I want you to think about this for a second. You have these three things you have word, you have sacrament, and then you have prayer. I want you to think where do all of those things collide? Where do all of those things interact together? And the answer is within the church. For the Reformers, this was so obvious for them that the only place where these three things collide, when I do my morning morning, uh, devotional, I read, I pray, I don't baptize myself, I don't take communion by myself, The only place where these three things, word, sacrament, and prayer, overlap and collide is in the gathering of the church. So for the Reformers, this was so obvious that they didn't specify that church participation was this central means of grace because they kind of expected people to make that connection. They expected people to see, the only place where I can get all three together is in the church. That's the only place where all three of these historic means of grace overlap. That's why the church is so central for discipleship and sanctification. In other words, there's this sort of synergistic relationship uh, between the various means of grace. Right? Each of them in and of itself is great, but then when they're all combined, it's even greater. If you remember that old cartoon, Captain Planet, You have all the different elements and then they combine and they form Captain Planet and he's greater than all of them. That's why if you stay home and you watch a sermon, that's okay at times, but it's not as powerful as when you come together as the church. Or if you take communion by yourself, that isn't really communion. You're you're missing out on the, the point of the efficacy of it. It doesn't really replace the church. The church is where God has instituted, he's intended for these things to collide for our sanctification and joy. That's why we have an entire lesson next month of the priority of the gathering of the church. So if you aren't prioritizing life within the church, then I'm going to be honest with you, you aren't prioritizing holiness because that is the main conduit through which God works in the life of his people. We have this, this tendency, this overreaction within especially Baptistic communities such as ours, to swing the pendulum so far into this sort of privatized, individualized view of the faith that's completely unhistorical and untraditional and even unbiblical. So we're going to talk about that uh, next month. Before we talk about the how we pursue the means of grace, let's consider what the church has historically thought about these means of grace. If you were with us last year, we talked through church history, and then we got to the Middle Ages. Overall, would you say Middle Ages, thumbs up or thumbs down? Let's do a survey. Have some like this. Thumbs up, thumbs down. All right. Great. Overall, had some real problems, right? Name some bad things in the Middle Ages. Black plague. Yeah. Name some things related to the church. Church didn't start the black peg, I don't think. Maybe you're like in the Illuminati or something, you have a theory. The Crusades? Crusades good, bad. Not that great, all right? What about popes with mistresses? Is that a good thing? What about cardinals killing popes so that that cardinal could become pope? All right, we talked about that. Multiple guys claiming to be popes at the same time. Not to mention there's a whole lot of bad theology in there as Well, so there's some good things that happened in the Middle Ages. You have the birth of the university and so forth. There's also some bad things. But one of the examples of the not-so-good theology was in regards to the thinking of the means of grace. There were really two different views that emerged in medieval Roman Catholicism in regards to the means of grace. The first was what was called mysticism. You might be familiar with mysticism. Mysticism taught the idea that God... In, immediately, without some sort of uh, uh, mediation, that God immediately impresses upon his people without any means whatsoever. Right, th- that kind of view uh, continues in charismatic circles today, which promotes the idea that God still speaks directly to his people apart from any means like Scripture. There's this downplaying of means, this emphasis on directly encountering God, Again, that sort of matrix analogy. God just kind of downloads truth into you apart from you reading or praying or worshiping or whatever it might be. There's this sort of just immediate downloading of sanctification and and, uh, and his will and so forth. So that's the first one. According to mysticism, there is nothing which mediates the presence of God. God directly reveals himself to individuals. So that's a rejection entirely of the idea of the means of grace. God just instantly, immediately, directly impresses his will on the hearts and minds of his people. That was mysticism. At the same time, as there was a whole lot of mysticism in the Roman Catholic Church, on the opposite end of the spectrum within Roman Catholicism was the view of the sacraments as a means of grace and necessary for salvation. All right, so uh, a lot of the Roman Catholic theologians of the medieval period believed that the sacraments contained Uh, Not just sanctifying grace, but justifying grace. The believer is uh, uh, progressively justified, according to Roman Catholic theology. Justification isn't something that happens immediate. It's not something that's imputed to us. It's something that's progressively imparted to us. We become more just as we participate in the sacraments. All right. So the sacraments contain justifying grace. the uh, The believer is uh, progressively justified, made right before God. as he does these various sacraments. And the sacraments work uh, ex opere uh, operato. Uh, That's a Latin phrase meaning by the work performed. In other words, the act itself contains the grace. If you're baptized, for example, as long as you don't actively resist God's grace, then you receive it. It doesn't matter really, according to uh, this view of the sacraments, it doesn't really matter if you have faith or not. That's why infant baptism works in Catholicism. It regenerates you regardless. The fact that that infant doesn't have faith, faith that doesn't matter in the Roman Catholic system because it works ex opere operato. It works simply by the work performed. It regenerates you regardless as long as you don't actively resist it. Now, all of the reformers were united in in saying that mysticism was wrong uh, and, and also that Catholicism was wrong when it comes to this issue of the sacraments. But they really didn't agree on what was right. So the Reformers all said, that's wrong, but we don't know what's actually right. Against the mystics, the Reformers held that God uses means. So they promoted Scripture and communion and baptism and worship and so forth. And then against the Catholic view of the sacraments, the Reformers agreed that the grace that is found isn't justifying grace, but is rather sanctifying grace. They all said, our justification is secure by faith alone, but in, their, but in uh, sanctification there is a sense in which we cooperate with God through his appointed means. But they disagreed on the exact meaning of the means of grace. We talked about this uh, a few years back. It was actually May 2019 if you want to go back and listen to some of those equipping classes on baptism and, uh, and communion And as we mentioned then, again, May 2019, all of the reformers rejected the idea that communion was relatively insignificant. That would be what the mystics would have said. They also rejected Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, but they didn't agree on where to land between those extremes. Luther chose the view that's actually closest to the Roman Catholic view. Roman Catholic view is called transubstantiation. That's the idea that the bread and the wine physically become, their uh, they're transubstantiated. Their substance actually uh, changes. It's transformed. It's no longer bread and wine. It is instead the body and blood of Christ. And so Luther holds a view that's closest to that, called consubstantiation. That's the idea that the, the bread and wine contain the body and blood of Christ. If you were to ask Luther, what is that bread? He would say it's bread, but it's also the body. Catholics would say it's no longer bread at all. It has become the blood of Christ. I mean, the body of Christ. It looks like bread. It tastes like bread, but it isn't bread. All right. Luther would say it's still bread, but it's also physically the body of Christ. The bread has two essences: it's the bread and the body. And the wine doesn't become the blood of Christ like the Catholics says, but it contains it. It's wine and it's blood simultaneously. That was Luther's view. Zwingli, who was the Swiss reformer, he didn't agree with Luther. In fact, he and Luther sat down uh, and and really wanted to try to work towards merging their uh, various reformations into one sort of singular reformation rather than having this German reformation and this Swiss reformation. So they worked together and they had a list of, I don't know, what it was, 14 or something like that doctrines, and they agreed on 13 of them. But their disagreement over this issue was so severe that they could never be uh, reconciled. And, uh, and so the Reformation continued on as two distinct movements. That's why Lutherans aren't considered Reformed, although they're Protestant. And so according to Zwingli, uh, he taught what's called the memorial view of communion, That Christ isn't present in the sacraments itself. Rather, it's just symbolic. It's just a memorial. That's probably the view that's most common in evangelicalism today. And I say that's unfortunate because uh, of Zwingli's emphasis on the word. It's just a symbol. It's just a memorial. It's a mere remembrance. Nothing more than that. That's what Zwingli would say. So enter the third view of another reformer, that of John Calvin. Uh, he not only sought to find this middle ground between uh, the errors of, uh, of mysticism and uh, Roman Catholic transubstantiation, but he also sought to find a more faithful option than either Luther or Zwingli. All right? Calvin, you can think of him as the Goldilocks of the Reformation. Right? Luther was too hot, Zwingli was too cold, Calvin was just right. His view is what's called spiritual presence. According to his view, Christ is present in the Lord's Supper, but he's not physically present like Luther and the Catholics would say. It isn't his physical body which is present. His physical body is ascended to the right hand of the Father. Rather, he's present spiritually. So he disagreed with Luther, but he also disagreed with Zwingli. Calvin said, this is not a mere symbol. Yes, it's a symbol. It absolutely is a symbol. It's not a mere symbol. It's not just a memorial. There's something mysterious that happens. We're actually communing with Christ when we partake of these elements. Yes, it's spiritual, but it's mysterious. And that word mysterious is important. In fact, the word for sacrament is derived from the word for mystery. In a number of places where the Greek has the word mysterion, which is where we get the word mystery, the Latin has sacramentum, which is where we get the word Sacrament. So the sacrament is mysterious, as the canons of Dort, this Reformed uh, statement says, as man cannot fully understand the manner of God's creating and sustaining life, so too is man limited in understanding the manner of God's use of means in bestowing grace. Or as Bavinck says, but we are unable to describe in fixed and clear formulations the relation established between God's grace and the means he uses in bestowing grace. So there's mystery Rather than seeking to run from it or to negate it or seeking to solve it, the mystery should instead cause us to experience awe and wonder. It's like when you're reading the end of the book of Job, right? Those questions that God asks Job were not intended to make him do some research on when mountain goats give birth or how the earth was formed or whatever it might be. That's not the purpose of God asking those questions. The purpose of God asking Job all of those questions that he asks at the end of the book are to inspire him to humility and to cause him to worship. So mystery is this good thing. But if you grew up, like I did, in a Baptist or non-denominational church, or if you've been influenced to any degree by modern evangelicalism, you're probably closer to Zwingli than you are, certainly to Luther or the Roman Catholic view, but probably even closer to Zwingli than you are to Calvin. Many... Uh, modern evangelicals, many modern Christians, maybe many of us in this room, tend to think of communion and baptism as being just symbols. That's it. It's just a symbol. It's just a memorial. That's all it is. And that's really unfortunate because if you think of it that way, you're going to rob it of its mystery. You're going to dilute it. You're not going to appreciate it. You're not going to understand the richness of these means of grace. Baptism and communion thus just become shadows These empty things that point to something, but they aren't all that significant in and of themselves. By the way, this is why things like virtual church make sense in today's culture. Because that act of communion is seen as somewhat irrelevant. What matters isn't whether or not I actually eat bread and drink wine. It's the heart that matters. It's the spirit that matters. It's this sort of weird Gnosticism sort of thing you can even take communion virtually which makes no sense at all right you can eat bread and you can drink wine with the church that's what communion means to commune with God and with his body so you can eat bread and drink wine with the church without bread wine or church right? I don't understand how that works but this dilution of this, the ordinances, the dilution of the sacraments helps explain why people get saved and yet they delay their baptism for years, right? They'll ask the question, is baptism necessary for salvation? And when you biblically say no, which is the correct answer, they then swing the pendulum and say, okay, so you're saying that it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. No, that's not what I'm saying. That kind of thinking would be horrific to the majority of church history and especially the Reformed stream of tradition, which is always held that God uses these means of grace to sanctify his people. So it isn't surprising that mankind continually seeks ways to bypass or supplement the ordinary means of grace instituted by God. Think back to the example of Naaman from the Old Testament. What disease did he have? Anybody remember? Leprosy, all right? He has leprosy. He hears there's a, there's a prophet in Israel who has the power to heal, so he goes, he asks Elisha for help, and what does, what does Elijah tell him to do? Yeah, that's exactly that's what it said. (laughs) To immerse himself in the Jordan seven times, all right. What is Naaman's first response? He says, "There are better rivers than the Jordan." All right, what's he doing? He's rejecting the means of grace that God has ordained in favor of his own chosen preferences. God said, "Go, bathe yourself, immerse yourself in this particular river." He says, "Why? There's better rivers." All right, was the Jordan magical? No. Was Elisha the prophet magical? No. But there were these means by which God demonstrated his grace. But Naaman's initial response is instructive because it shows this universal tendency that we have to reject God's appointed means. And when the means of grace uh, are downplayed, something has to take their place. So for the individual, that happens all the time. All right? Individuals reject the means of grace. They don't read their Bibles. They don't take communion. They delay their baptism, you know, for years on end. They don't attend church. And then they ask, why aren't I growing in holiness? That's like saying, I eat whatever I want, whenever I want. I don't work out. I don't eat healthy at all. I can't understand why I'm not losing weight. All right? All right? And that same tendency to reject the means of grace that God has given isn't just something that individuals does uh, do, but churches as well. So ch- churches reject the means of grace, the sacraments and the word and prayer and so forth. And so when they do that, they, they have to replace it with something else. They have to replace it with you know, light shows and smoke and mirrors. They have to replace it with personal, personal testimonies and skits and anthropocentric songs and Liturgical dance or whatever it might be. You know, a ribbon ceremony or something. So rather than going to the Jordan, we just try to go to river after river after river in search of the next big thing in church entertainment. Contrast that again with our ancestors, right? Take Calvin. Calvin was told explicitly by the magistrates of his city in Geneva, he was told you have to allow unrepentant sinners to take communion. In Calvin's response, he defied the city magistrates. He preached a sermon about communion. He went down and he stood between the people and the table and he declared this. He says, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to profane and dishonor the table of my God. That, what Calvin does there, doesn't make any sense to us. From a 21st century American perspective, because of the way that we've diluted the sacraments. But when we understand they are God's appointed means of grace, all of a sudden this makes sense. So communion and baptism aren't empty symbols. They aren't irrelevant or unimportant. None of the means of grace are. So let's get practical. How do we, what do we do with this? All right? How do we pursue the means of grace? We've seen there's a sense in which our growth in Christ is related to our use of the means that God has appointed for that growth. If we want to get stronger, you have to eat more, you have to sleep, you have to strain your muscles and so forth. If you want to lose weight, you have to eat healthier, you have to exercise more. If you want to fly, you have to get into an airplane or a helicopter or something. Likewise, if you want to grow into the likeness of Christ, we need to use the means of grace that God has ordained to that end. So think back to the tiger analogy. If you want to see tigers you got to go somewhere. You can't just wake up every morning and look out your window and hope that you'll see it. All right? There's a chance, but it's not very likely. I've known people who've gone to the zoo, right, and they've not seen a tiger. But I've not known anyone who kind of went looking for a tiger in their bathroom and found one, right? Likewise, I've known people who read the Bible and go to church and pray and partake of communion who don't seem to be growing in holiness but I've never met anyone who was genuinely holy who didn't read the Bible and pray and prioritize church and practice the sacraments. In fact, that's part of what it means to be, the, to be holy. It isn't a sufficient cause of holiness but it's a necessary cause. If you want to grow in holiness you must use, use the means that God has appointed. All right. When Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, what did he do? He climbed into a sycamore tree. Why? Because he was a wee little man, right? What if he wouldn't have climbed the tree? He wouldn't have seen Jesus, right? So I want you to think of these means of grace as climbing a sycamore tree. Because we have this small spiritual stature. We can't see Jesus. The higher that we climb, the more of these that we do, the more regularly that we do them, By God's grace, the greater expectation we have of seeing Jesus. So if you want to grow in holiness, if you want to avail yourself of the means of grace, I have five encouragements for you. Number one is that you would genuinely engage the Word of God, that you would read it for yourself, that you would study it for yourself, that you would memorize it for yourself, that you would meditate on it, that you would treasure it, that you would delight in it, that you would sing it, that you would pray it, that you would build your life on it. Number two, in addition to that, that you would listen to it. Remember part of the, what the Reformers meant when they say word, as in word, sacrament, and prayer, isn't just your individual reading of the word, but the uh, participation in the proclamation of the word. So that you would listen to sermons and you would listen to teachings which help you understand the word of God. That's the second thing. The third thing I would say is that you would pray. Go back and listen to Jared's teaching on prayer. It was great that you would pray individually and corporately and regularly and spontaneously and so forth. Number four, that you would practice the sacraments. That means if you've not been baptized, you need to be baptized if you love and trust Jesus. In fact, we have a couple of baptisms um, after services today. Or if you aren't regularly taking communion, then you need to do so. If you aren't taking it because you're not a believer, that's great, you shouldn't take it. But you should believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and chat with us if you don't know what that means. And then next, that you would regularly participate in the life of the church. We talked about this before a number of times, but there's this strange way that people think about the sacraments and even church attendance. That's the exact opposite of the biblical way. And I know I've been there in the past before. Maybe Maybe you yourself have even had this thought Right? Imagine that you give in to some sort of temptation on a Saturday night. You have a big spite, a fight with your spouse. You say something you never should have said. You look at something you shouldn't have looked at. Whatever it might be, you, have some, you give in to some sort of temptation on Saturday night. So you wake up on Sunday morning and you feel shame. You feel dirty. So you think, I'm just not going to come to church today. I'm too dirty. Or you do come to church, but you think, oh, I'm not going to take communion. Because you feel too shameful. You see what's happening there? What's happening there is miss missed the point. There's a theological gap that's happening there. You're saying, I'm too sick to take the medicine. And that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That's what church attendance is. That's what sermons are. That's what worship is. That's what communion is. That's what baptism is. They're, they're God's medicine for weary souls. They're God's appointed means or methods for strengthening you, of healing you. They're the ordinary means of grace appointed Your good. So, how do you receive sanctifying grace? By posturing yourself. Posturing yourself where God has generally promised that He would be. Posturing yourself under the waterfalls of His help in the Word, in sacrament, and in prayer, and then in particular where those combine within the context of the church. God has concentrated His grace like a rushing fountain for weary souls. So, we should drink. So, let's pray. And then we'll do some Q&A. Father, I thank you for your grace. I thank you that you are a God who not only gives grace, but gives grace through ordinary means. And so you haven't left yourself um, hidden. You haven't left us to try to figure it out on our own, but that we can simply engage you in the ways that you have um, uh, have ordained, and we can have a general expectation that you will meet us in those places. And so grateful, Lord, um, for your grace to us and pray that you would make us a people who would be diligent uh, to prioritize the pursuit of you through these appointed means of grace. We pray it in Christ's name, amen.